Over the last few days, we've had uh, just a great time together with uh, our conference churches, having the annual meeting and uh, celebration here. And we were blessed to have Jen Hedinger with us and lead us through that. Uh, before I introduce him, I want to just thank everybody in this church and this church family that helped us make uh, a success of the last couple of days. God, God was working, and um, we were just blessed, so thank you. So, brother, come on up. Uh, Jan Hedinger was here last year, and uh, he blessed us, and he's blessed us the last couple of, week, couple of days, I mean, and uh, we expect God will use you again. So let me pray for you. Father, we ask that you uh, would bless your servant here now as he has opened his heart to you. And I pray that uh, your voice, Lord, would be his today. And give us, Lord, also uh, an openness and an insight to things that we haven't known before and the things that we are pushing against in our lives. So we give you our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I think I'm going to move my uh, computer. The problem with computers, of course, is you get dependent on them. And uh, where I usually speak, the electronics is arranged differently. So I need to be able to see that, too. I don't know if this is going to work. There we go. And uh, so I'm going to preach from over here. Folks, it's not, uh, I'm not having a problem with that side of the auditorium. I love you too. <laughs> By the way, uh, my wife sends her love. Uh, Sharm was here with me last year about this time. And uh, her mother, Barbara Jo Baxter, uh, Indiana girl, in that part of the, the country in the U.S., um, the girls are always uh, named by their first and second name, so Barbara Jo, and uh, in, in her area in southern Indiana, she's Bobby Jo. But she's 95 this week on uh, Tuesday, and folks from the Midwest have come to uh, Seattle to help us celebrate. So my wife has a house full of guests, and uh, that's why she's not with us today. But uh, she asked me last night if I would make it clear that uh, she really misses having come back. Our Lord uh, is wonderfully creative in his ability to communicate. I think you know that. When it comes to something we call the doctrine of the church, Ecclesiology, isn't that a <laughs> forgettable word? Ecclesiology is the study of the church from the scriptures. But um, the, the New Testament doesn't use the term ecclesiology. Ecclesia, of course, is the Greek word for church, ecclesia. And uh, the Bible was, the New Testament was originally in the Greek language. So that's how it morphed into uh, English. But the New Testament is very graphic about the church. So give me some of the illustrations that the Holy Spirit uses for the relationship between Jesus and his church. Marriage, okay, the bride and the bridegroom, okay? 
What else? Conquering son? Oh, father and son. Probably not the church on that one. Okay, the shepherd and the sheep. Great. Good illustration. Can you think of some others? There's seven great illustrations. The head and the body. Excellent. Any others? The vine and the branches, actually. And the vine dresser or gardener is the Father. God the Father, yes. Any others you remember? All right, how about the high priest and the kingdom of priests? Or the cornerstone and the living stones built into the wall of the holy temple of God? Well, what I'm going to do is um, have the audacity to, in the machine age, use a machine as an illustration, all right? But before we get there, what I'd like to do is, is talk about this baton image, all right? One hand passing the baton to obviously another runner. Behind it is the pillars of um, the Colosseum. In, in Rome. That image is essential to our thinking about who we are. Because your followership of Jesus, your personal faith in Christ, is not yours alone. Every follower of Jesus must be focused on the next follower because we are in a relay race. And every leader in the church of Jesus Christ needs to be focused on the next leader. So we raise up followers, we raise up leaders, and this church does not exist for itself. As sweet as your fellowship is, as wonderful as your friendships are, as precious as it is to be the body of Christ locally here in Port Alberni, this church is about the next church. And there's plenty of room in this community for more churches. You know that, and I know that. There's plenty of room in these chairs for more followers. There's plenty of room in this church for more leaders. Now, in order to uh, get there, in order to get to a multiplication mindset, where we're always about the next, the next, the next, not just about ourselves, We've got to have four things in place, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. The essentials of, and I wish I had remembered this. There we go. Is it working now? No. We were having trouble beforehand with this. And um, why don't you just move it to the next slide, please? When I say I'm going to be talking using the illustration of a modern machine... Uh, nothing is uh, more classic in description of this age than the airplane. And in this case, a jetliner. Now, this is not a Boeing product. <laughs> and I'm sorry about that. This is uh, more like an Airbus. But it's still a jetliner, okay? <laughs> and um, you can hit that next slide. 
There are four categories that equate to essential doctrine of the church that I want to fasten to this image. I want you to remember this as the jet plane sermon, okay? So a year from now, when I come back again, maybe, <laughs> um, or two years or three years, you'll say, hey, I still remember that jet plane sermon. The cockpit of a jetliner is where the pilot operates. The pilot on a jetliner is in control of the whole machine. He is the one who is in charge. He's the one who sets the course, the direction. And he's the one to whom all of the flight crew and the passengers um, respond in uh, not reverence, but in obedience. So when he says over the loudspeaker, um, get your life preserver out from beneath your seat, um, you do it. When he says that the little mask is going to drop down, you're supposed to put it over your face and begin to breathe oxygen, you do it. The supremacy of Christ in the church is absolute. We operate under the leadership of Jesus. He is our head, he's our bridegroom, he's the vine, we're the branches, he's the good shepherd, we're the sheep. He's always supreme. We call that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. That God is the leader. All right, and we've got to get that settled. Because we have such a strong propensity to want to be in control. And it's only when we yield to the Lord Jesus and his control that our ship can fly properly. The second piece is community. And a community is the wonder of the church, the body. You are rich and poor. You are from various people groups, ethnic groups. You are young and old. You are male and female. And yet you are one body in Christ. And that, that's uh, illustrated by the cabin, where in a jetliner we would all be riding if we were on this flight. Community is... Wonderful, if it's operating properly, it can be very problematic if things are not going right in the passenger section of the plane. We'll talk about what life is like there in just a moment. Let's look at the uh, wings. The driving, the SV, by the way, stands for supreme value. So the supreme value of the supremacy of Christ, the supreme value of community. And now we're talking about driving values, DV. Number one is transformation, and number two is multiplication. Those are the two sides of discipleship. So in other words, you have placed your faith in Christ, you have repented, you have resolved the followership issue, Jesus is now your Savior and Lord, okay? You're now a Christian, a real Christian, 
Not a fake Christian, not an appearance Christian, not a religious Christian. You're a real follower of Jesus, all right? There's two things going on in your life. You are becoming like Jesus. You always become like the God you believe in. Always. If you are following Jesus, then you are becoming like him, and that's transformation. Your life is changing. You are changing from a self-centered person to an others-centered person, and in particular to a Christ-centered person. Your allegiance to Christ flows out from the inner part of your life, and instead of your ego being dominant, the Holy Spirit is leading you to become like the Lord Jesus. Now let's take a look at these parts again, and um, let's start with the supremacy of Christ. Always we start with Jesus. So let's look at the ingredients here. The supreme value looks like this. The supremacy of Christ is always all about Jesus. We make a big deal about Jesus. You noticed that our worship this morning was about him and what he has done and what he's accomplished for us? We're not worshiping ourselves. We're not worshiping our pastor. We're worshiping, or the elder board. (laughs) We're worshiping our head, the Lord himself. It's, It's always all about Jesus. He is the pilot. Let's look further. He's in charge. He's in control. He commands and enables multiplication. So, Jesus loves the fact that you have responded to the gospel. That you have chosen to let Jesus take over in your life. He's delighted with that. But he is always looking at the field, the harvest. Is that a familiar uh, illustration in the New Testament? You know it is. He's always looking at the fields that are white unto harvest and asking us to get involved in the harvest as his servants. All right, he commands and enables multiplication. Let's take a uh, closer look at the supreme value of community. Community is... um, the way Jesus has designed his church to be built around relationships where we are one, we are united, we're necessary to each other. In other words, we're, we're, nobody here gets all the spiritual gifts. We each have gifts according to the grace that God has given us. And the gift is given to you to serve the rest of the people in the body. So... When I say we're, we're viral or contagious, there's two sides to that. A beautiful body, a beautiful church, a church operating in unity and in harmony is what the, the watching world has been waiting for. I mean, you know how cruel this world is, how full of injustice it is, full of violence full of hatred, full of dissension and conflict. The church is the one place on earth where the beauty of true, harmonious human relationships should be seen. I've had uh, the privilege over the years of, of having the children 
of um, second and third generation Christian families in my church. And some of them are uh, the children of missionaries, some of them are children of pastors. And one of the things that they sadly say is, Pastor Jan, I don't know if I believe because of what I saw in my home. In other words, we all went to church. We were involved in the church. My dad was a deacon or an elder. My dad was a pastor. My dad was a missionary. But what happened in my dad and mom's marriage and the way they lived in our home with us kids was not consistent with what they said they were about. The home was still a very painful place. There was a conflict going on between my my father and mother. And my dad was indifferent to us kids because he was so focused outside of the home. And my mother was having problems with anxiety and depression, and it spilled over onto us kids, and it just didn't seem that there was the power of God operating in our home, and I don't know if it's real. And my friends, that's what's at stake in whether or not we're beautiful as a body and whether we're consistent in our personal lives when we leave this place. What's at stake is whether our kids can believe. Whether they sense it's real or they think it's just something we're engaged in like the Rotary Club or, do they have that up here? Probably or some other kind of social activity. When our supernatural supreme leader is in charge and is allowed to shape us, we become beautifully viral. In other words, our kids look at us and say, there is a God, (laughs) and I want to believe in him too. All right? That's what's at stake. Now, let me just say something about the, uh, the viral aspect of this, because there's, if you are uh, ever on a plane, um, you know that it's actually a fairly dangerous place when it comes to viruses. My wife, uh, when she gets on a plane, she, you know, she looks like uh, a tidy maid. I mean, she's, she doesn't trust the... Uh, the crew that's cleaned the cabin. So she gets out her, her wipes, you know, and she wipes down the tray and she wipes down the, the screen, you know, for watching things and, and she wipes down the, the handles and, and uh, the, rail, the rails between the seats and she then hands it over to me and of course I have to do it too, which is a little bit embarrassing. Um, But the whole idea is, she says, Jan, it's a germ factory. All these people that ride there, they've got colds, they've got the flu, who knows what they've got. Let's see if we can mitigate that and stop as much of that from spreading to us as possible. All right? What are some of the the problematic viruses in a church? What, what's the church flu? 
What spreads so quickly in a church? Well, I would say uh, church flu is um, loose talk, gossip, backbiting, malicious talking. Um, these, are, these are the sins of the tongue. And sad to say, the sins of the tongue are the most common among us. We're not violent physically. We're violent verbally. We hurt each other with our tongues if we're going to hurt each other usually. All right? One of the things the Holy Spirit is always after is the control of the tongue. Isn't that the the lesson of Acts 2? When the Holy Spirit came upon the church, what did he affect? First, the tongue, right? Now, it was speaking in tongues, speaking in other languages, but don't miss the obvious. The Holy Spirit always starts with your speech. And not just extra languages. He starts with your speech in terms of um, controlling your tongue. And that's what he delights to do. So he makes us safe verbally. We, we treat each other right with our, our tongues. Let's look at another virus that uh, is easy to catch in the church, and I'll, I'll call that the uh, cold virus. Um, that's the spectator spirit. A cold virus, I use that term cool or cold, because when you sit back behind your eyes, back in the cave in your head, and you look out and observe and are a spectator, but you are not involved. You're watching. That spectator spirit is contagious. It isn't long before other people are doing the same thing. It also is a form of consumerism. In other words, I go to church, I consume services, events at the church, but I don't necessarily become part of the church. I'm a spectator. I call that the cold virus. There's um, something called church cancer. You know what that is? It's not so contagious, and yet it can spread, and that is taking offense and harboring offense and refusing to forgive. And then there's heart disease, and that's just simply, I got, the only church that I like is the church that caters to my preferences and my comfort and my convenience. All right? Does that kind of thing spread? Yeah, it does. Does it change the nature of who we are together? Of course it does. We want to eliminate that from the cabin, the fellowship, the community of faith. And so um, let's move on to the, to the next value. Transformation is the fact that God will not let you stay the way you are. Um, he loves you, but he's always moving you toward his son. Let's look at the ingredients of transformation. When Jesus is allowed to be our pilot, in other words, he's the one to whom we submit, he's the one in charge of our lives, he takes us to his own quality of character. 
He's always moving us toward himself in the sense of becoming Christ-like. He unselfs us and makes us humble. He makes us humble givers where we were once proud takers. I'm going to read from uh, Acts 2 at this point because I want you to see that this is the pattern of the first church. I'm going to start with uh, verse 41 of chapter 2 of Acts. It says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. It's a remarkable day for church growth, right? 3,000 people after Peter preached his first sermon. And they, the 500 brethren who already were um, there, and the 3,000, so now there's 3,500, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. All right, now we're talking about the cabin, the, the community of faith. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave it to anyone as he has ne- had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here it is again. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It was growing. It was multiplying. It was intended to be that way. And we'll talk about that for the rest of the sermon. But I'd like to to just think through this when Jesus is our pilot. He unselfs us and makes us humble givers where we were once, once proud takers. If there's anyone in the universe, I'm going to come over here for a minute because you guys seem a long ways away from me, all right? If there's anyone in the universe who has the right to be self-centered, it would be God, right? It's his universe. It's his creation. This planet is his planet. We human beings are his creatures among many creatures that he created. And he did such a magnificent job of it. And there is such variety and there is such beauty in what he does. And it could be that it was all about him. Now it's wonderful for you and I to worship him in humility and in submission. But let me tell you something. He is not self-centered. He is not self-focused. How do I know that? You remember the cross? Okay, what does the cross say about the leader of the universe? The cross says he's a giver. That in his love, he gives. And he gives his best. And he gives his all. And he gives sacrificially. And he gives absolute gener- with absolute generosity. He is a giver. So when you become his follower, what happens? He takes you into the same mindset that he has. He makes you a giver where you once were a taker. When it were, before Jesus, it was always all about you. What's in it for me? What about me? How do I feel? What do I want? Now it's, 
What would be the best for God's world, for God's creatures, for God's creation, for God himself? I want to give like I have been given unto by my supreme Lord. He unselfs us and makes us humble givers where we were once proud takers. Is that it for transformation? Is there anything else? That's it? Okay, let's go on to multiplication. Oh yeah, he empowers a new creation. This is not done in our own strength. We are people of grace. In other words, enabling grace. There's the grace that saves us, and then there's the grace that changes us. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. He empowers the new creation that we become in Christ. Let's look at uh, multiplication now. The four essentials of multiplication um, include this second driving value where Jesus never lets us settle for what has already been accomplished. So you have a wonderful church here. You've built this building. You have a history of serving this community. But that's not the end. It's only the beginning. He never lets us settle for what has already been accomplished. He thrusts us into our world to multiply followers, leaders, churches, church planting movements, and he empowers workers in his harvest. And that is just simply the way he does things. He's always thinking about the next, the next, the next. All right, let's, um, let's move from there um, to the next slide. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, tells us that this was normal in the early church. What I'm talking about, I want you to understand, is what God did in the churches that Paul and uh, Silas planted, Paul and Barnabas planted, the other missionaries that went out, planted churches, and what was normative in those churches? Let's just read about the church at Colossae, all right? We always thank God, Paul says, for the, the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, the faith and love that springs from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you, Now look at what the gospel is doing. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. All over the world. But particularly, it's already happening in this church. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it and understood God's grace and truth. This is what the early Christians expected God would be doing among them. They would be bearing fruit, and the church would be growing, expanding, because what was happening is this. Followers to Jesus were being gathered from the community. Leaders were being developed, and those new leaders were being thrust out into the surrounding areas, into other communities, other towns and villages. And the church was growing, just as it has been doing since that first day. Now, let's take a a look at this a little bit closer, all right? Let's look at the next slide. A multiplication of followers doesn't mean that we don't get quality Christians. It means simply that we, we do both. We bear fruit all over the world. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has among you. Now, 
Fruit can include several things. There's three kinds of fruit in the New Testament. Can you help me out with that? Fruit of the Spirit, somebody whispered. Okay, that's one of the fruits mentioned in the New Testament. What else is there? Bitter fruit, okay. That would be the result of sin, usually. Anything else? Okay, love would be part of the fruit of the Spirit. It's the first ingredient of the fruit of the Spirit. How about um, the fruit of our lips? Hebrews 13. Even praise to our God. So the fact that you worship this morning is part of your fruit as a Christian. Um, The other kind of fruit is from John chapter 15, which is the vine and the branches, and the the, uh, vine dressers looking for fruit. Now let me ask you, uh, why does a vine grow grapes? What's the purpose of a grape? Wine? No. <laughs> we, we, we could argue about that. <laughs> um, what's in a seed? What's in a grape? Ah, I, I blew it. Um, yeah, seeds. Exactly. And a seedless grape is not a normal grape. All right? It's a hybrid. Uh, grapes are designed by God to have seeds. They are the way the plant multiplies itself. So what is a seed? It's a plant in miniature. It's a baby plant. All right? You and I were designed to bear fruit. But in that word, fruit... Every piece of fruit on the planet is about multiplication. Now, is it delicious? Yes. Is it nutritious? Yes. But what's it supposed to do? Grow more plants. What's in an apple? Delicious fruit, yes. But what else? Seeds. So when you look at an apple, what do you see? The next apple tree. In fact, you you could take the seeds from an apple and you could be looking at the next orchard, not just the next apple. Whenever you see this idea of fruit, think of multiplication. You and I are designed by God to bear fruit, but that means more of us. Let's, uh, let's look at this whole idea of multiplication in the first Christians, all right? Let's look at um, the verse, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. All right, how does Acts record this? Show me the next piece. All right, that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the spread of Christianity. The incredible growth of the church. If you take a a highlighter, like say a yellow or an orange highlighter, 
and go read through the book of Acts this afternoon, it'll take you about a half hour. It's not that, you know, it's not a long novel. Um, if you're a, a decent reader, it might take you a half hour. If you're a little slow, maybe 45 minutes. But it'll be well worth it to go through and look at every passage that describes God adding to the church those who were being saved. Or, um, and believers were added to the church, and priests were added to the church, and leaders among the, the, the towns where the gospel was going were added to the church. And add, 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 the church was actually more than being added to, it was actually multiplying exponentially. It was exploding. And that's what I want, I want you to see next. This is the astonishing historical reality. This is from a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. He records that in 40 AD there were 10,000 Christians. So 10 years after uh, Jesus uh, went back to heaven, there's about 10,000. At 200 AD, there were 218,000. And then it started to multiply. 350 AD, 33,900,000. And today, in 2019, 2 billion plus, approximately um, one-third, um, one-fourth to one-third of the world's population are Christians. That that is being directed by God. That is a supernatural process. That is an amazing, spirit-driven multiplication process. Let's look at the next slide. Are we still multiplying? Well, how many Christians are there in an average day uh, coming to Christ? How many new believers in India? 6,000 in South America? 10,000 a day, Africa, 20,000 a day, China, 32,000 a day. Did you know that China is the most Christianized country in the world? Even though we know of it as a communist country, there are approximately 160 to 170 million Christians in China today. It has been going viral, house to house, small groups, underground, Persecuted. To be a pastor in China, you pretty much have to spend time in jail. That's almost a requirement to be a leader in China. But the gospel is going forth with power in that great country. All significant multiplication, however, is in developing countries. How about the Western world? Are we still multiplying? Well, in our Western world, there's actually no growth in Christianity. Uh, by the way, before we go any further with that, um, there seems to be some correlation between the Western world stopping reproduction of physical children and stopping reproduction of spiritual children. When we stopped valuing descendants, we stopped valuing children and grandchildren, 
our virility, our ability to have children seems to have dried up. Psychologically, Western people don't want kids. We love them. They're just a bother. They're expensive. They get in our way. We can't have as much fun. They're, they're a lot of work. And when your life is about ease and comfort and fun and pleasure, children get in the way. And that's what's happening in the Western world. In Europe, there's only one... By the way, Europe does not have a replacement reproduction going on. I think you know that. Um, the immigrants in Europe are the ones having children. The Europeans are less than, reprodu- than replacing themselves. Um, I've, I've, walked, I've been online looking at some of the, web, the Arab websites, many of the, um, the Muslim uh, communities that have come to Europe as refugees, as asylum seekers, are prolific. They have 10, 12, 14, 16 kids. And you know what? They're doing that deliberately. They believe that they won't have to fire a shot. They will take over Europe just simply because they are producing the kids. And um, now, I don't want to get into that. That's What I want to tell you is that something in reverse has been happening with Christians in Europe. One of the most startling things is to go to Europe and see these vast, beautiful churches. Have you ever walked through a cathedral? Gorgeous. You look at the creativity and the effort and the dedication and the passion that went into those enormous buildings that used to house bustling communities of Christians. And now they're museums and they're tourist attractions. They're art. They're they're pieces of art. But they're no longer living. They're like a seashell. A conch shell. Beautiful. But there's nothing alive in it. It's dead. All right, that's what's happened in England and and in uh, Europe. England is about 7% evangelical. The U.S. is about 13% evangelical. By evangelical, what I'm referring to is basically the difference between Christianity as a religion, you know, a form, and Christianity as a relationship. Christianity as a profession of, hey, I identify with the white race or the brown race or the black race, or I identify with the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. It's not that kind of thing. It's about a real relationship with the living God becoming his follower. So we talk about evangelicals, hopefully not uh, exaggerating too much, but uh, we we say they are the true believers. Uh, Not always the case, but... About a, a 40 million of us in the United States, I don't know what it's like in Canada accurately, but I would guess it's maybe less than that, um, 
Out of North America, by the way, there's 140,000 missionaries still being sent, which is wonderful. We are still, this continent is the strongest sending, gospel-sending continent in the world. Now, some of the third world nations are rapidly catching up to us. South Korea, for instance, is sending tens of thousands of missionaries around the world. Brazil is sending tens of thousands of missionaries around the world. So uh, God is at, at work in the third world countries in some remarkable ways. The thing that I want you to notice is that in North America here, 90% of the people say they believe in God. Believing in God is not what we're after. <laughs> Believing in God absolutely does nothing in your life unless you obey unless you follow God, right? Jesus said, the demons believe and tremble, but they don't change their behavior. You and I live in a, a culture that still says they believe in God. They don't pay any attention to God's word. They do what's right in their own eyes, but they still say they believe in God, and and that's a, a serious problem. But are we still multiplying? George Barna is a polling expert um, among us, and he says this, there is not one county. I'm not sure about, uh, do you guys have county, uh, counties up here? Or what's the division of the provinces? Municipalities, okay, same kind of thing. So in the states, there's not one county where the percentage of church-going Christians is increasing. Not one. And we're, we're talking about the Bible Belt, too. All right? Many Christians are growing, or many churches are growing, while the other churches in the area are declining, and the res end result is no real increase. And this is how it happens. Um, let's say that your church had the best child care in the area. State-of-the-art. All right? People knew that they could trust their kids to you, and their kids would have a great time here. All right? Would that draw families? Probably from other churches first. All right? Um, let's say that you had the hottest worship band on the island. You think you could swing that, Eric? <laughs> All right, and you're known as the church that's got the, the lights, the sound, the smoke pots, the, you know, the whole show. Your worship is like a concert. Well, high-quality musicians, high-quality sound, high-quality lighting, high-quality images, and Christians come from other churches. Because we've trained them to be consumers. And pretty soon your church is growing because of the excellence of your programs and your functions at the expense of other churches that don't have the technology, don't have the money to put it on, don't have the personnel to put it on. And that's how church growth, which is very deceptive, happens these days. Larger churches get bigger. Smaller churches 
go out of business. They die. I'm working now, I'm a, a church planting director in North Seattle. I work with about 17 new churches, counsel and coach and mentor the young pastors and the, the leaders of the church. That's what I'm doing in retirement. Of course, you never retire when you're in God's kingdom. But one of the things that I'm trying to salvage is the dying churches. Because they have their property, they have their buildings, it's usually paid for, but real estate in Seattle, the north end of Seattle, is enormously expensive. Probably not much different than here in British Columbia. Um, A church, uh, let's say, that has four or 5,000 square feet of uh, serviceable space would be worth millions in North Seattle. Uh, I just helped a church that was evaluated at $4.7 million. There were 25 people left in the church. All right, They were aging out, just dying out. They'd lost their ability to, to multiply in any way in their neighborhood. Uh, other ethnic groups had moved into the neighborhood. They didn't know how to reach them. They didn't have family connections with them. They'd lost that ability to connect. And so they were hanging on. And so we asked them, would you give your building to us, to the conference, it would be like BC of BC, only there it's Converge Northwest, would you give us the building and we will start at least one, perhaps as many as three other churches here in this building. And they said, we'll do that. We'll be a nurse log. You know, we'll... we'll will be about the next generation. And uh, some wonderful things are happening in in that facility. It used to be called the old Haller Lake Baptist Church. Um, And there's now three churches meeting in that that facility. Praise God for that. Well, let's take a look at the law of life. And this is where I want to conclude. God has designed every living thing to reproduce after its kind. Genesis 1 and 2, right? Every animal, every insect, every bird, every fish, every plant was designed by God to multiply. And then Jesus reveals to us that the church of the living God is an organism. It's a living thing. That we're members one of another. That we are a body That we are designed so that my hand serves my face, hopefully. (laughs) Um, My my feet, my toes, my, my legs, my hips, my stomach, my heart, my liver, my kidneys, my brain. It all works together and Jesus said that's an illustration of us. We are given to one another so that we function as a living creature, an organism. That's basic ecclesiology, by the way. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Remember what fruit is? It's full of seeds. What are seeds for? Extending the species. 
Let's do that. In the name of our great Savior, under his leadership, our pilot, in community, with the thrusts of the Holy Spirit, in transformation and multiplication, let's live the Christian life in such a way that these seats fill up. That this community fills up with churches. That the island fills up with the praises of Jesus. Let's bear Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've revealed in your word. We've just basically scratched the surface this morning on this subject of multiplication. I've tried to embed it in our minds with the airplane image. Um, you, you have some even better ideas in your word of the, the bride and the bridegroom and the head and the body and the shepherd and the sheep all designed to help us remember who we are and who you are and what we're supposed to be doing. Lord, this morning, we're sobered by the reality that in our part of the world, the gospel is not expanding like it has in, in past centuries. Thank you that it is happening dramatically in other parts of the world. Thank you for what's happening in India, South America, Africa, China. Thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ being born again of the Spirit of God right now as we speak around the world. It gives gives us great joy to realize that your Spirit is still working with power to reproduce followers and leaders and churches. But right now here, in this church, there's a longing in the hearts of each of us for full productivity, for the beauty and wonder of spiritual multiplication. And so we offer our lives up to you and we say, O vine, O Jesus, our sustainer, the one who we cannot function without, the one who we're connected to in love by the Spirit. Oh, flow through us. Lord, give us what we need to bear fruit. But we're willing. We're available. We're ready. We want your fruit full of seediness to cast out into our world. And Lord, I pray that the result will be that this island will once again know the fullness of the control of the leader, Jesus Christ. I pray that you, the Creator, would take back your creation. That you would lead us. That you would multiply what you have begun here in many other places. Lord, I pray that you'll raise up leaders from among our children and young people. I pray that some of the older adults that are here would find their best days yet in multiplying your kingdom on earth. So I commit them to you and ask, Lord, for miracles, for demonstrations of your power and your leadership. Lord, use us to multiply your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.